Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Jason. I am also Jason. I gotta say, this is my favorite part of any Trap One episode. We're talking and we have the 1968 invasion music going on underneath us. Just bopping my head along to the music right now. (laughs) (laughs) So, on the 3rd of November last year, we sadly lost prolific Doctor Who writer Bob Baker. So we wanted to record an episode to celebrate his work and the rich legacy that he's left behind. Bob Baker started his Doctor Who career with writing partner Dave Martin when they were commissioned by Terence Dix in 1969, the pair writing together in Martin's barn. Baker concentrating on the plot while Martin did the typing and developed characters and jokes. The first script for Doctor Who was The Clause of Axos, broadcast in 1971 as part of season eight. So probably the most famous story or the anecdote about Clause of Axos that, uh, that Terence Dix and, uh, and everybody will tell on, uh, or used to tell on the convention circuit or you'll see on documentary, is the budget-busting concept of a giant skull-shaped spaceship landing in Hyde Park one lunchtime. Um, and, and it's kind of uh, probably sets the, the pattern or the idea that people have of, uh, of Baker and Martin that they would, their ideas and imagination far outstrip Doctor Who's budget. Uh, so yeah, this, this was one of them. The school-shaped spaceship would have actually been a pulsating space brain jellyfish that could project itself into any form. And other parts of the script had a, a giant carrot that was going to uh, crash to earth or have somebody strapped to it and um, being crashed to earth. <laughs> Jason's holding up a carrot to, uh, to illustrate carrot that. Carrot calling earth. Carrot calling earth. It was also the, uh, they were told they had to include the master in this story, which Baker didn't really think was a good fit. But I think they really made a virtue of this by the story not being driven by the master's evil plan. So he can cut loose a bit more and you get all those fantastic scenes where we get a glimpse of what it would be like if the master had been exiled to Earth and ended up working with UNIT when he and the brigadier are, are trying to uh, avert nuclear catastrophe. So I think it's pretty, it's, it's almost the same sort of thing that Stephen Moffat did in World Enough and Time later on when you've got uh, the two masters together and they're not really sort of driving things, but it's just great fun to have them there and commenting on the action and, and, and getting involved as well. So I feel like thinking about it this time, that's potentially a bit of an inspiration for that. And it also introduces the, the very political elements that they, uh, they bring to their story. Um, the, the, the line, which unfortunately is as relevant today as it was 50 years ago when the story came out. England for the English, good heavens, man. Very true, very yes. true. Clause of Axos works amazingly as a novelization. I read the book before I saw the TV episode, and the book includes, I believe, it's been a while since I read it, and it's not coming up on my novelizations podcast for another two or three months, my recollection is that it includes a lot of scenes that were deleted for timing purposes because if you were to produce the Baker and Martin scripts as written, it would be 45-minute episodes in a 25-minute time slot, which wasn't going to work. And if you watch the raw cut of episode one, a version of which was included on the original DVD release 15 years ago, and the complete version, all 75 minutes of which is released 
on the season eight Blu-ray, it really breathes. The scenes go on a little bit longer. There's some deleted material. Everything holds together. When you cut it down into a 25-minute time slot, it's very choppy, and there are transitions that are missing. And then you have the unfortunate mix of the dreary, brutally cold exteriors versus the day-glow interiors. It's just an uncomfortable story to look at. Although I will say that it gives Roger Delgado the award for the coolest master of all time because he is able to act as dramatic and as suave as possible in front of a phallic prop dangling from the ceiling. It is amazing that Roger (laughs) Delgado is able to do this. This cannot be what Bob Baker and Dave Martin had in their heads. But this is what, unfortunately, the production had to give us. And as great a director as Michael Ferguson is, even he can't quite make this one work. So the concepts are great, the dialogue is great, and the idea of the Doctor and the Master teaming up and the Doctor pretending to be even worse than the Master in order to get what he wants is really interesting, especially in year two of The Exile. And I don't know if this is a Bob Baker or a Martin line or if it's a Terrence Dix line, but the intergalactic yo-yo has become one of the most identifiable Doctor Who quotes. Anybody who says intergalactic yo-yo automatically marks you out as a Doctor Who fan. It's one of the iconic quotes. So if you set aside the production values and the idea that these guys cannot write to a BBC budget, it really is a good story. And spoiler alert, this is what, written in 1969? At the end of this episode, I'm going to talk about a script that Bob Baker wrote in 2009, and 40 years later, the guy still cannot write a script to a budget. It's incredible that he went a 40-year career and still didn't learn that potentially valuable skill. Yeah, I think we're going to be coming back to that quite often, aren't we, (laughs) in most of the stories that we're going to be reviewing tonight. But uh, it is kind of like the quintessential unit story, isn't it? It has all the elements Mm -hmm. of there. If you were to say, like, you know, which are the, like, probably two stories that define the unit years... You probably are going to pick something like the Claws of Axos or the Daemons, um, mm. as you know these are the quintessential thing. They have all the elements of the show during the Pertwee years, you know, with the Brigadier, with Captain Yates, with Sergeant Benson, with Joe, uh, with the Master, obviously making his like third appearance in this season because he's in every single story. And yeah, um, I don't think he seems too shoehorned in this one because he does that kind of like pop up. Um, I mean, is it at the end of the second episode where he suddenly like um, is revealed? So it's not like he's in it from the beginning. Um, and then you've got like a that kind of like continues for the series where he, again he doesn't um, pop up until about halfway through the story in Colony in Space, and then um, you know the demons he's there from the first episode. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a lot of elements in there that I think that you know other writers probably took and they probably like took inspiration from because it, it's almost as if they're they're writing their quintessential um, unit story on their first attempt for the show. You know, it is a rollicking adventure. You know, you, you can't say that it doesn't like lack uh, pace or anything because it, it just starts from the off, very much like Spearhead from Space. It's almost as if it's using that as a template but then obviously goes off on its own uh, Baker and Martin kind of like um, version. I like the idea of the Trojan horse aliens. I mean, you have these aliens that are offering us everything we need for energy independence, uh, solving world hunger, 
And of course, it's a complete sham. And you notice that the great media comes back to this theme time and time again. I mean, the entire miniseries V, you could almost say, was based on the Clause of Access. And it isn't. It's a Holocaust parable. However, it also has a lot of similarities with Clause of Access. So that becomes a good place to draw your story from. Absolutely. Yeah, completely agree. It's definitely one of the stories you immediately think of when you think of the unit era, the unit family. You say the, the, this and the daemons. And I think yeah, part of that is because all the characters are so well served in this one as well. Everyone gets gets plenty to do. Um, and uh, introduces uh, Bill Filer, who you almost feel like they're writing him in the hope. There's a few characters, I think, that obviously with K-9 uh, does become a, a recurring character who will uh, you know, still be appearing in Doctor Who media right up to the present day. But I think... Uh, Characters like Drax that we'll talk about, Bill Filer, feels like they, they, they could be introducing characters that could that could keep popping up again. And he gives an international scope to UNIT. I mean, it makes sense that, especially at the height of the Cold War, the early 1970s, America is going to have a UNIT spy, as well as the UK is going to have a series of UNIT operatives. And it's nice that he's there. And have we talked about Chin yet? Because you have this evil selfish, self-absorbed civil servant who is a staple of the Pertwee years. One of them pops up in just about every episode, starting with the Silurians the year before. If you think about Russell T. Davies as a guy who is trying to do the Pertwee era in the present day, and you look at Torchwood Children of Earth, which I just watched last week for my pilgrimage, the character of John Frobisher, Peter Capaldi, in that series is chin he's with the home office he's given portfolio with alien contact and he makes a complete bot job of it now children of earth is more realistic and chin is done a little comedically but i think chin is one of the more memorable supporting characters of this of the entire era and that's a credit to baker and martin for putting this character in a story where he's not a good fit he you know and the actor certainly takes his part and makes it work the greedy civil servant trying to cut a deal and making things worse for everybody. Yeah, I don't, I don't really think there's much more to say about it, except for, you know, for their first attempt, you know, they do hit it out of the park, really. Um, and, you know, obviously they must have done a, a good job. And, you know, you can see the guiding hand of Terrence Dix with them, and he was very much their mentor um, with that. And they can see, like, obviously then as their, their scripts develop, uh, you know they hone their craft, and um, you know they're great ideas, men. But they're also great at like putting them those ideas together in a script. You know they don't um, kind of like just churn out the same plot every single time. That uh, they they come up with a, a different story virtually every single one of their um, you know scripts that they produce for the show. Absolutely, yeah. I think we you see the beginning of some of the th- the themes that they are interested in, starting with the clause of Axos. But in terms of plot and story, yeah, yeah, absolutely, they're they're, they're all different. We see the the nuclear thing comes back quite a few times, doesn't it, with the Armageddon factor and the hand of fear and, and different things. So let's talk let's talk about the mutants. Then this is one of the ones that I claimed as we were plotting out the Bob Baker era. So if Clause of Axos is a story about the Cold War and paranoia and the enemy within, the mutants is equally political, 
but it takes an entirely different approach because now, instead of being a story about Cold War paranoia, it becomes a story about the end of empire and the dangers of colonialism. And these are pretty radical things to say, I would imagine, for 1972, as the British Empire is just about losing its last possessions. And you also have you know, themes of nativism and exploitation, as well as environmentalism, because you have a planet that is in the middle of climate change, and there's a reason for that plot-wise. And you have this colonialist character, the Marshal, who bears a disturbing resemblance to Rush Limbaugh, the American evil talk show host, as he looked in the 1990s. And he is trying to terraform the planet, which would mean the genocide, the genocide I should say. As some people say the word as opposed to genocide, which is my slip of the tongue, of the local population. So this is, again, a story that has tremendous value. And if you read the novelization, which again is by Terence Dix, because Baker didn't novelize his own work, the novelization is incredible. He has detailed descriptions of the sets. He has you know the gleaming space station versus the shoddy, the shoddy facilities on the planet. There's a lot of imagery in the story. You have the the mutants who eventually, you know, evolve into highly developed angels, which is another theme to the story. You know, appearances can deceive. These insectoid mutants are not, in fact, evil at all, and are in fact the good guys of the story. Um, however, the director, and again, this is the second story in a row where the ambitions of Baker and Martin fall completely flat in 1972. Yes, you have some nice location work in the caves. The Purple Era would spend a week on location for these stories. They'd go to an exotic location. All the cast would stay up at nice hotels. They would spend their days working, you know, in this fantastic cave structure. That part works well. But considering that Christopher Barry is the guy who directed The Dead Planet, and Christopher Barry is the guy who put Doctor Who on the map with that story, every directorial choice that he makes in The Mutants kind of makes you question his competence. It makes you question whether or not the dead planet was just a lucky accident because so much goes wrong with the production of the story with the CSO. It's got some of the worst guest acting in the entire history of the classic series, and I'm not just talking about Rick James. It's a great story to read on paper. It's a series of great ideas. The production makes... It's a challenge to suspend your disbelief. So this is the second time in a row that Baker and Martin create this story that is almost impossible to realize. And the story has a less than stellar reputation because of that. But if this had been book only in the 1990s as a missing adventure, or if it had been a big finish third Doctor story five years ago, it would probably be rightly hailed as one of the greatest of all time. I think certainly its uh, production values are a bit <laughs> ropey in certain areas. You kind of like uh, the whole sky base is is, is um, it's that same background, uh, like vac formed wall that you get. Like that's repeated. Then I think in several other Doctor Who stories because they obviously they didn't throw away those walls. And there's that obviously some dodgy CSO in it. But um, no, yeah, I mean it's not Chris Barry's best work. Um, and he does redeem himself, uh, or redeemed himself when he directed the the demons. Um, and obviously, it does some um, good work as well. You know, with the brain of Morbius. Um, God knows what he did with 
his last work, which was Creature from the Purple. That's season 17, and that's a completely different story. Um, but, yeah, he does make some good use of the atmospheric um, location work, and that's that's really good. Uh, and and it, it's a nice analogy. Um, it, it's... I think it's one of the few Doctor Who stories that we've talked about in previous podcasts where, you know, the monsters are not the monsters. The monsters are the humans in the story, you know. So there's that. Um, and obviously, you, you know, the mutants are, you know, the ones who, you know, quite rightly, you know, evolve. And obviously you've got the appearance of Garrick Hagen uh, for the Star Wars fans there who played uh, Big Star Lighter in uh, the first Star Wars film, Luke's best friend from Tatooine, who became uh, one of the uh, rebel pilots at the end. Um, but, yeah, it's... I think, like you say, Jason, if it had been done as a novel or perhaps, like, you know, as a big finished play, audibly i think it, it would have come across uh, a lot better you know sometimes the visuals don't do it the best favors but you could say that of a lot of doctor who stories really couldn't you that being said james Aitchison, who is one of doctor who's many academy award-winning alumni does a great job with the mutant costumes which are going to get reused in the brain of morbius and just to come back to christopher barry for a moment this is the guy who directed robot as we've recently heard talk about on Trap One. And this is the man who said, you know what's going to look great here? A toy tank in forced perspective. <laughs> Trust me, the kids will love it. So, uh, yeah, with Christopher Barry, you got to take the rough with the smooth. But Aitchison does great work. Yeah, we were singing uh, James Aitchison's praises on, on our recent uh, Giant Robot episode. Um, and I, I don't think we mentioned the mutant creatures. Actually, yeah, it was um, a, another triumph. You can you can see why he went on to um, to bigger and better things. Uh, it's interesting in his autobiography, "Canine Stole My Trousers." Bob Baker considers this story their best Doctor Who work. And I think purely from a sort of script story point of view, it, it probably is the strongest. Um, it is full of uh, amazing ideas. The you know the idea that the uh, you know people slowly turning into monsters isn't the usual science fiction thing of they're being taken over or it's this, uh, you know, it's a horrific thing. It is part of a natural cycle. And I think you, that is another common theme possibly through their writing is that, is that layering in sympathy for, for the, for the apparent villains or monsters, uh, the, like particularly Omega, is a very very sympathetic character. I think you know, for for much as he's uh, he's, he's a ranting villain at times, the his his, his situation and uh, you know the way he feels, which obviously not to jump the gun, but um, you know, oh it, my fun there. Yeah, sorry, he's great sympathy for him, and also with, with Eldrad as well in in the Hand of Fear. So I think uh, you start to see that there is is you're not getting the uh, you know the kind of black and white villainy that you that you get in a lot of Doctor Who stories anyway. So I think it's uh, it's potentially the um, the first part of that. And uh, yeah, in, in his autobiography, he talks about those creatures being, he, he feels particular success. And um, he's happy that they avoided the dip that he, he recognized that can happen in a six part story. Uh, he calls it uh, introducing a dog leg at the end of episode three. So by introducing a new element in, in Sondergaard, uh, you know, you recognize that that's how you sort of avoid that dip and, and you know, sort of uh, start to put new elements. That makes, by the way, two future Star Wars actors in the mutants because Jason talked about Garrick Hagon 
I am looking into Jason's room right now, thanks to the electronic miracle of Zoom, and I can see an Empire Strikes Back poster, which memorably features John Hollis wearing a headset and not speaking because his accent would give him away. That's Lobot. Of course, Lobot. Yeah, yeah, I forgot he was in the story. In fact, as you guys are chatting, I'm going to retrieve my Lobot action figure, which is a couple of shelves behind me. I had read, I think it was Damon Lindelof, who was desperate to do a Lobot spinoff movie after the Han Solo movie, which ended up failing and destroying all of these spinoff movies. But I don't know if he was speaking tongue-in-cheek, but there's a really interesting story behind Lobot, the character. He was supposed to come back in the third movie, and it just couldn't be arranged, and he got written out. But his story was not supposed to end the way that it ended. So we could have gotten even more John Hollis in the Doctor Who universe. And I think he does a really memory. Here he is. Here is uh, John Hollis memorialized forever as a Kenner action figure. And there's his uh, digital headset at the back of his head. But that's Dr. Sondergaard right there. And I was playing with him years before I saw the mutants. I should have recognized him from the action figure alone, I guess. <laughs> I'd never made that connection. He also pops up in Flash Gordon, doesn't he, as well? He's one of the tree men, isn't he? I think. Or am I confusing uh, that with Richard O'Brien? Is he in... I might have to check IMDb for that one. Oh, John Hollis also played Blofeld in the teaser sequence to Four Your Eyes Only. He was the uncredited Blofeld. Ah, the one that they couldn't credit because of the legal wranglings that not being able to use the Blofeld character. And he is one of the floating heads on the screen in Superman the movie right next to William Russell. Yes, yeah. Right. He's the Blofeld that gets dropped down the chimney. Uh, They hook him on the... um, the, uh, the the helicopter and drop him down. Yeah. With the unfortunate joke about the stainless steel delicatessen, which uh, has baffled fans now for 40 years. <laughs> I just feel sorry for the cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think for the next story, we've got no John Hollis, uh, but we do have a character called uh, Mr. Hollis in there. That was an excellent segue. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> it came to me now. Um, so we have the 10th season, which um, ironically does start actually uh, nearly a year ahead of its time of the anniversary in uh, December 1972. And this is Bob Baker and Dave Martin's uh, third script for the show. And it's the one that uniquely and um, brings back both the first and the second Doctors for the very first time, the first multi-Doctor story. And uh, there was a bit of um, trouble with the production of this, certainly when it was coming together at the script stage. Um, They got the agreement of Patrick Troutman more or less straight away, but I believe there was some disagreement with Fraser Hines, who was originally supposed to be in the story. So Jamie was... uh, you know, going to be in the story, but he wasn't being able to be released from Emmerdale Farm, which he was one of the stars of at the time. And also they had the ongoing issue with um, William Hartnell's uh, health condition um, when obviously he was contacted by the production team and spoke to Barry Letts and Terence Dix. And he said, oh yeah, I'd absolutely love to uh, appear. And unfortunately that was one of his good days and his wife had to then contact uh, the production team and say, well, 
he's he's not a well man. Um, so that underwent massive rewrites. But also in the Three Doctors it gives us so much more with the uh, mythology of the show because you've got the introduction of Omega and obviously the explanation of how the Time Lords came about um, with their power, harnessing the power of the black hole and sacrificing Omega. So there's lots to take in, and it's a fun, rollicking adventure. I don't think anybody would probably say it's a classic, um, but it's one of those go-to comfort blankets, I think, for me uh, in the show. As in, like, if you want a good rollicking adventure, you know, and you want to have a, a fun time, you can't do wrong by sticking the three doctors on and seeing uh, John Perley and Patrick Troughton's uh, um, acting together. Definitely, yeah. This is the most recent one of these that I watched because I was on Jason's literature podcast talking about the novelization of this. So I so I rewatched the story again, and it sets the template for multi doctor stories as well, doesn't it? It's it, it's the, uh, Baker and Martin's writing that that has them bickering, uh, which which has been in every multi doctor story since. It's not you know sort of necessarily the the first thing you would think of. Uh, that you know that maybe they would just immediately sort of team up and become unstoppable, but that has created so much humour across uh, across all the different stories, uh, and then obviously has, has transferred over into convention appearances when you hear about Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee's uh, kind of little shtick that they would do to, uh, <laughs> to to draw the crowds in as well. Well, fights as well. Yeah, <laughs> and there's so many quotable lines in this one. I know you were saying about the. Uh, the, the galactic yo-yo before Jason, but the uh, the the lines in this the uh, a hero I should have been a god the I'm pretty sure that's Cromer a dandy and a clown there's a very interesting thing in again in, in Bob Baker's autobiography that line was originally a hairdresser and a clown and uh, <laughs> uh, thought it was going a bit far, so that's why he got changed to a dandy and a clown, which I'd never heard that anecdote the before. The hairdresser, I think, sends the wrong message for a 1973 audience about the inherent masculinity of your series lead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if it was season 11 and Pertwee's Buffon in that series, I could understand the, uh, <laughs> the line there, but yeah, it doesn't quite work for series 10. And I think what I hadn't realised as well was just how relatively newer discovery black holes were at this point but the name was only coined in 1967 and they'd only discovered the first black hole in 1971 so it was very much cutting edge sort of science that they were that they were tapping into with this as well and mark is not doing himself justice because i'm going to say in terms of that doctor who literature episode that he was on mark created the greatest moment in the history of that show which is now Episode 20 is in post-production. It'll be out in a few days. I'm talking to Mark. We're having a very calm, urbane, weedy conversation about the series. It's a very pleasant podcast. We're talking about literature. Mark all of a sudden busts out with a Stephen Thorne impression that is so good that it kind of took over the show. And as soon as I can isolate the audio track, it's going to become my new sting at the end of every episode. See, Mark, Mark said before, <laughs> I should have been a god. Which is, you know, just reading the line, but that is not the way Mark performed it on my show. On my show, Mark <laughs> is talking about Stephen Thorne at a convention and talking about the voice, and Mark suddenly goes, a hero, I should have been a god! And I just, <laughs> it was like five seconds of being unable to breathe because I'm trying to hold in my laughter. 
So let's, <laughs> let's give the line the full credit it deserves. The way Mark delivers that line is as good as Stephen Thorne. That's quite a good delivery indeed. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, but yeah, just I say one of many fantastic lines in this story. Um, you, you just get quoted endlessly. Um, so it's uh, and and the obviously the uh, you've redecorated. I don't like it. Starts here as well, doesn't it? With uh, with Patrick Troughton saying that yeah. uh, about Pertwee's Tardis, and that that is repeated ad infinitum through through stories and fandom and uh, and, and so many other places. I think the two biggest drawbacks to this story, and they're relatively minor drawbacks because, as Jason says, this is a comfort blanket of a story. Number one, you continue the Baker and Martin obsession with blobby monsters that cannot be realized in a 1972 production studio. So, again, this is the 10th anniversary story, but it aired just about after Doctor Who's 9th anniversary in December 1972. So it's 10th anniversary in name only. In 1972, they did not have the capacity to make the gel guards. So when people think of this story, it's in a dismissive kind of way because the gel guards look so ridiculous. The other problem, and again, this is a problem only in a relative sense, it doesn't have Baker and Martin's trademark political wit because this is kind of a nightmare brief. You're going to have to write a story. Great, count us in. But it's got to be a 10th anniversary story. Done. And you have to include the second doctor, okay? And you have to include the first doctor. <sighs> Fine. But wait, the first doctor is sick, and he can only appear in a glass cage reading one word at a time off of cue cards. Wait, what? And you have to include the Time Lords. The what now? And you have to include characters that we used in 1969 in the war games. The war what? You mean the movie with Matthew Broderick? And they just keep having thing after thing thrown at them. I don't know how much of the story actually is their idea versus them just trying to write Terrence Dix is increasingly desperate and overcrowded outline. If you want to credit them with the idea that Omega founded Time Lord Civilization and is now in exile and has become a creature of will only, like that great scene where he takes off his helmet and there's nothing there, that is a fabulous idea. But it doesn't have the scintillating plot or the political messages of the first two stories. So it's not their best work. But it is so much fun, and some of that is on you know the actors, but a lot of that has to be on the dialogue, which is Baker and Martin. So it's still a pretty, again, I, I like that phrase, comfort blanket. I might just <laughs> keep that for myself. I'm not sure how much of a, a comfort blanket it would have been if their original idea and draft had come to pass, so reading in, in the complete history. And instead of Omega, it would have been death. Um, and uh, this this sort of um, antimatter realm would have been more sort of like purgatory or something like that. So it would uh, kind of a, a bit of a darker, bleaker idea that they originally came up with. Yeah, which obviously probably Terrence Dix probably steered them away from, you know, because one, you know, it's, you don't want to get too dark for tea time on a Saturday night. And so this is supposed to be like a celebration of 10 years of the show. You know, and it's kind of like you don't want to like, you know, pour in too many of those dark elements, you know, because it's going to overwhelm the, you know, the frivolity of of, of getting the Doctors together, which obviously then becomes a thing with the subsequent, like, you know, anniversary specials, like you said. Absolutely. And and uh, another thing from Baker's autobiography was that he thinks that Omega is the best megalomaniac that they'd written. Uh, so they were uh, they were pretty pleased with the way he came out. So. And, 
Well, he certainly, uh, you know, got a longevity to him, right. hasn't he? Because obviously, you know, Big Finish have used him. And obviously, I think now a, another company have started to uh, use some of uh, Bob Baker's ideas, haven't they? There's, uh, is it a CD, uh, Omega, starring Brian Blessed? That's uh, just been There's released. a great voice. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Cutaway Comics, isn't it? That have uh, They've done an Omega uh, comic strip and then an audio adventure with, with Brian Blessed. And, and there was talk a long time for a long time of a canine versus omega movie wasn't there which unfortunately obviously never never got made but i know this was something that uh that bob baker was working on i think wasn't it, it was uh was, you know to heard a few times yeah. over the last few years i think he probably thought with the cloud that he had like you know with uh being a, uh, obviously co-writer of the wallace and gromit movies uh and obviously being you know an oscar-winning writer you know he would have liked getting like a, a foot in the door for Hollywood, but unfortunately, you know, it wasn't to be. Okay, can you imagine Peter Salas as the voice of Omega? That would be a very different Omega vibe if you carried him over from the Wallace and Gromit movies. I should have been a god, Grummy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was looking for. Somebody came through. <laughs> Omega shows up in some of the books as well in Lance Parkin's Infinity Doctors, which was Doctor Who's 35th anniversary novel because there was no video. Uh, Omega shows up heavily. And then in Lance Parkin's last book in the Eighth Doctor Adventure series, The Gallifrey Chronicles, Omega has this hilarious cameo towards the end of the book. But because the Doctor is amnesiac at this point in his history, has no recollection of Omega and disposes of him in a very offhanded way. But this is a character that has survived, you know, deep into the 21st century. And you've got to give Baker and Martin credit for giving this charismatic role that's still with us today. And he's one of the characters that's always rumoured or anticipated might return in the modern series, isn't it? It's probably the Rani, Susan, um, and then there's, there's sort of Omega and the Valyard and, uh, and, and different people like that. Um, and uh, there's, uh, I think, was it the the church that, that were the villains in, in season six, uh, series six? That uh, I think some early photos made it look like maybe they had the symbol for Omega on their on their uniforms, uh, and that yeah. big sort of internet theory. So in fact, he carries that much weight. Uh, obviously, came back, you know, in the in the Davison era as well. So it probably is due a return. Yeah, and obviously, I, I remember fandom going uh, convincing themselves like they they do <laughs> when these things happen that John Hurt was going to be Omega. Yeah, uh, in the 50th anniversary special, you know, and he's like, "Well, hold on, why is he dressed like in a doctor-like costume? Yeah. <laughs> why is he palling around in the, you know, <laughs> in that castle uh, set with David and Matt? You know, surely that's not quite the right thing." And you know, but fandom was convinced that he was going to be Omega. There was lots of people who were like saying they were in the know and they'd like, you know, seen script leaks and stuff, and obviously, you know, completely. Had- you know, egg on their faces when, uh, you know, we had that reveal at the end of the name of the Doctor that John Hurt was actually going to be playing the Doctor. And I haven't had Rathbone back as well with, uh, you know, an actor of, of huge stature. I suppose when, when there is a big name, uh, you, you would think it would be somebody of the, the stature within the Doctor Who mythology as, as Omega. I suppose that could have been Donald Sumter playing Omega in um, Hell Ben rather than his uh, second incarnation of Rassilon. But 
I want to say this is a great idea that Russell T. Davies can use to undo the timeless children and bring Gallifrey back one more time. Omega comes back, clears up the timeline, clears up the timeline, gets rid of the timeless child, gets rid of all those regenerating time lords, Cybermen helmet thingies, and just restores Gallifrey to what it was. And Omega says, "Did I do it? Am I a hero now?" And the doctor says, you're not a hero. You're a god! That should be the 60th <laughs> anniversary right there. Omega undoes the entire Chibnall universe and brings the Time Lords back one more time. Voiced by Peter Salis. <laughs> Everything's under control. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll soon find out if Russell T. Davies listens to this podcast, if that's, uh, <laughs> if that's in the 60th, won't we? So, so that's the three stories that... Bob Baker uh, wrote for the Pertwee era um, under the auspices of Terence Dix's script editor. And the next time they write for the series is in season 12 with the Sontaran Experiment. I think this is probably the story that books the trend in terms of them uh, exceeding what the budget um, the budget can achieve and in terms of writing a much more reined-in script that's that's not as as jam-packed with ideas and things like that i think there's still still a lot of interesting stuff in there and and reading the complete history they they took a lot of inspiration from stories of of gestapo experiments in world war ii concentration camps so again is that like sort of streak of darkness as well that uh, <laughs> that they uh, that they often put into their scripts uh but but yeah it's not they, I know some of their early ideas had sort of like uh, Nelson's column sort of rising out of the, the wasteland of uh, of London and things like that, uh, inspired by the end of Planet of the Apes. But but really, it's a it's, it's much more of a straightforward story for them. Um, what I what I quite enjoy was some of the stuff that uh, is is in the complete history and in, in his autobiography that uh, Bob Baker talks about Robert Holmes. Um, Given them loads of stuff about the Santarans. Um, the quote where he said, he was Santaran mad. He'd discuss it for hours if you weren't careful. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, in his autobiography, he said, you know, he's just given them reams and reams of uh, backstory and sort of information about the race. And he just sort of dismisses and said, they were just megalomaniacs. It was fine. <laughs> so it seems like they, they got all this information and then uh, and then pretty much discarded it. So uh, yeah, that was a, a sort of funny little uh, backstory to it. I thought it's a very concise story, and I think, uh, like we said, they do the quintessential unit story, and you can easily argue that this is probably the quintessential like two parter. There's not many two parters in the history of the show. Uh, certainly not in the classic series anyway, and obviously two-parters in the modern series you'd equate to a, a, a four-parter in the classic version. Um, but, yeah, it, it's literally, it's kind of like does set, tell a very concise story, does exactly like what it needs to do before it then like moves on, obviously, to the next one. It's, it's like a little placeholder between Ark in Space and Genesis of the Daleks, two classics. You know, it's not going to be like a, a big standout story, but it, it keeps your interest, and uh, you know, it keeps you watching because it, it's a nice little adventure tale. And the, you know, there's some good stuff in there for Harry. Now, it'd be interesting to see, like, whether or not that was the original idea 
or whether or not they had to rewrite elements of it because Tom Baker famously broke his um, shoulder blade, didn't he, uh, on location? Yeah, collarbone, yeah. Collarbone, yeah. Yeah, sort of uh, fell down a ravine or something, didn't think, it? Yeah, it was, it, was yeah. The, it was the first story made under the Philip Hinchcliffe era, and Tom Baker fell and was motionless for a long time, and Philip Hinchcliffe, according to the Blu-ray text commentary, was afraid that he killed his star the very first time out. That would have been a dreadful opening to the Tom Baker era. <laughs> it would have done. For me, this is one of Doctor Who's least essential stories. If you look at my review of the original DVD on Amazon from 2008, I think, I have more praise for the video quality on the DVD restoration. Dartmoor looks great. I mean, Dartmoor is a character in the story. And you can see why Conan Doyle set Hound of the Basketballs there, because it looks great in the book, and it looks even better on, on the videotape. It's not Tom Baker's best performance as the Doctor, and the best stuff that Harry gets to do is all in the novelization, where Ian Martyr takes part two and spins it into a 100-page tale with all sorts of stuff that couldn't have been done on screen. So it falls to Ian Martyr to write all the stuff that Baker and Martin didn't write for the story that could not possibly have been produced on location and in the budget. Uh, Kevin Lindsay was very ill. He was not able to give the same performance as Lynx that he had given the year before in, well, I guess two years before production-wise in Time Warrior, and he passed away soon thereafter. So it's kind of a sad story to watch in that sense. Tom Baker gets hurt. Your lead villain is dying. Viral, as a human villain, is so wispy and transparent that he's probably one of the five least memorable human villains in the entirety of the classic series. So there's good stuff to like about Santaran Experiment, but for me it's probably the weakest of all of Baker and Martin's work. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about Invisible Enemy, which I think has a much better kitsch factor and is much more enjoyable to watch, um, even if the production leaves a lot to be <clears throat> desired. But I'm not going to say too much more about Sontarink. I want to keep this positive, so uh, I'll move on and save my praise for other stories. Well, I mean, like, it's a very slight story, isn't it? And obviously done um, to save the budget in other areas. Uh, you know, they used the same uh, Sontarink ship, um, uh, that, and that's really the only set they've got there. The only other expense that they've got is obviously the, uh, the robot, which was uh, filmed on the top of a Ford Angular, wasn't it, as it was driving <laughs> down the, the roads uh, of uh, Dartmoor. Um, but, yeah, besides that, it, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's a little, like, you know, appetizer before you get to uh, the classic that is Genesis of the Daleks. But it's nice to see the Sontarans back again, you know, and it's I think the, a second appearance straight after the, uh, the their first appearance the year before kind of like cemented them into uh, the general public's consciousness. Like, and uh, I know, um, you know, members of my family always used to call them like, you know, the potato guys. When, when, oh yeah. I remember the ones that looked like potatoes. Uh, and then obviously you get them popping up a couple of seasons later in the big like cliffhanger to um, episode four of invasion of time where, you know, it turns out that the Sontarans are the ones behind the whole, Ruse, and I, that's one of my favourite cliffhangers of all time because you know, but reading the Doctor Who monster book, uh, you know, like I used to do as a kid, 
obviously knowing of the Suntown experiment and reading the novelization, when they finally turned up and I could actually see them in the series, it was like, you know, that was like, oh my God, it's the Santarans. It's like, you know, as a kid, that was that was really cool. So hey, I think I think that's that's its legacy. It cements the Santarans, you know, as one of the, the top monsters for the show by them appearing literally mm. um, you know, two years in a row. Don't you remind me what you said about the robot? An interesting sort of tidbit I came came across, I think, in the complete history was that the original as, as originally envisaged by the Bristol Boys this was going to be a robot that moved very, very fast. So you didn't see it moving and it would just appear. Um, and it makes you wonder if that was an idea, if, the, if that was inspiration for the Raston Warrior robot, uh, you know, when uh, Terrence Six came to write The Five Doctors. Uh, but yeah, it would have obviously been um, much more practical as well to uh, to have done that instead of, uh, instead of it sort of slowly wobbling around uh, Dartmoor. That sound means we're about ready to move on to The Hand of Fear, which is the next Bob Baker and Dave Martin story produced as part of Series 12 and the story that writes out Sarah Jane Smith. Now, the writing out of Sarah was not part of their brief. They did not write her departure scene. They concluded their script with the defeat of Eldrad and the departure from Eldrad's home planet. Um, Hand of Fear is very important in the evolution of Baker and Martin as writers, because it's when they discover catchphrases. You have this easy-to-remember, easy-to-repeat catchphrase that kids can walk around the playgrounds for years afterwards saying, and everybody will know what they mean, and everybody will repeat it. So here it is, Eldrad must live, and most of the rest of their stories... (laughs) Jason is doing a did-on image of uh, Elizabeth Sladen on camera. (laughs) <laughs> Every one of their stories for the rest of the Tom Baker era is going to include one of these memorable, easily repeatable catchphrases. You have the regenerating villain. So you have a different incarnation of Eldrad in each of the four episodes. So in episode four, it's a stone hand missing a finger. In episode two, it is a living blue hand, kind of like um, Thing from the Adams family. In episode three... It is a leggy female made of silicon in a very, 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 very flattering form-fitting costume. <sighs> Pardon me. Needed a minute there. And then in episode four, we get the return of Mark's all-time favorite Doctor Who villain character actor, Stephen Thorne, delivering – and he casts aside all of the hesitance and all of the shyness that he put into Omega. And he decides, this time I'm going to go for it. Omega was shy. Omega was retiring. I am now going to give a villain who yells and has full voice. So this is the apotheosis of Stephen Thorne. You have the nuclear reactor, which was, I believe, supposed to be the same nuclear reactor from uh, Claws of Axos, but here it's called Nunton instead of Newton. They put one extra letter in the spelling. You have this really neat misdirection with Dr. Carter, because when you watch part one, you believe Dr. Carter is going to be a main protagonist of the story. He befriends the Doctor, and then he's killed off, shockingly, in Part 2, having been possessed by Eldrad. You don't often get characters in Part 1 who seem as if they're going to be heroes who are then shockingly gotten rid of in Part 2 and don't carry through to the end. The only other example I can remember is um, John Abeneri's character in Death to the Daleks, who was shockingly killed off in Part 2. You get the same effect here with Rex Robinson's character. Um... And then, of course, you have Elizabeth Sladen getting to do possessed acting, and you have her amazing costume, which people are still wearing to conventions to this day. 
So Hand of Fear is a ton, a ton of fun. Sorry, a ton of fun, I should say. Gorgeous production values. Uh, two great performers doing Eldred. And I realized that they didn't write it, but the Doctor and Sarah departure scene written by Tom and Liz themselves is one of Doctor Who's finest hours. So there's nothing bad to say about Hand of Fear at all. Yes, just like Andy Pandy. <laughs> just like Andy Pandy. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's great like that. I, I'd made a note of the uh, of the catchphrases thing as well because it's something that in the modern series we have in, in a lot of Stephen Moffat stories, isn't it? Like the Who Turned Out the Lights and Are You My Mummy? There's a, it's a Eldrad must live here. Contact has been made. The quest is the quest. Um, all those type of things that they bring in. So it's uh, something that's definitely put their mark on the series which uh which is still still got a legacy now um and the the nuclear thing as well you say which uh which runs through a lot of their stories uh, the nuclear power or nuclear war and um i think i can't it's a little while since i watched this one i can't remember if that's the character that, that you were talking about there jason but there's the the scientist who phones his wife i don't think he's the one who, i think he survives actually doesn't he um yeah yeah uh Yes, and and that just strikes as a, a lovely little character moment that only takes a few seconds on screen. But Doctor Who characters don't normally think to do uh, because a lot of them don't don't seem to have a life sort of outside of uh, outside of the immediate um, the immediate adventure that's going on. And it just always strikes me when I watch it as such a really really nice character note. Well, I mean, watching it in like the light of today's like you know uh, new series, it's a very new series like scene, isn't it? You know those kind of like scenes, like you know you get ten a penny really. You know, currently since the show came back, you know in two thousand and five, but like you said, in in back in the day, it was very very rare that you got supporting characters who would actually like you know be given a life outside of their little like um, run around that they had in in the story. You know, you never really found out much about them, and again, it's the kind of thing that um, Bob Baker does again in uh, later on when we get to Nightmare of Eden. He has like you know, um, you know, two of the characters actually in a relationship, you know, um, which is you know not really heard of. You know, you don't really like get that in, in like Doctor Who at all. You know, uh, until obviously you get to like the new series. So yeah, but my overwhelming memory of this is that this story scared the crap out of me as a kid um you know uh, my memories of doctor who really kind of like you know i remember the odd story genesis of the daleks um bits of brain of morbius and pyramids of mars um but i really it's really from season 14 where i remember like literally every single story because i would have been about um, four or five at the time then and um, but the hand of fear absolutely petrified me the whole hand on its own you know in the tupperware <laughs> sandwich box uh, that cliffhanger you know and it's that classic like horror um you know cliffhanger isn't it you know from like you know the beast with five fingers and you know those kind of like you know b movies but you know doctor who does it so well uh, you know, and whether that was an inspiration from, you know, um, old movies that was given to them by Robert Holmes, because we you know that he'd love to crib that kind of stuff and put Doctor Who's spin on it, or whether it was something like, you know, 
Bob and Dave like came up with themselves. But yeah, it, it's one of those definable images, I think, from the show. Uh, and a clever twist of making the villain uh, initially, you know, once we see them fully formed, a female, but then obviously you then do the twist and they actually like, you know, then swap genders and become a male, you know. Unheard of, probably, in 1976. I mean, the anger of mm. fandom in 1976, for years afterwards, we had the hashtag not my Eldrad brigade. And they thought Eldrad should never <laughs> have switched genders, and they thought the entire series was illegitimate. But <clears throat> more seriously, let's talk about how clever is part four, because you have trap after trap after trap. And every few scenes, there's this escalation where you have to navigate another trap that is more deadlier than the last. And you get to the very end, and it turns out that the king has laid a trap for Eldrad and gives this great speech from beyond the grave. Hail Eldrad, king of nothing. It's a terrific, <laughs> terrifically clever. It's a little bit like Pyramids of Mars, which was only like the year before. But I think Hand of Fear Part 4 is really clever writing. It's another... Um kind of good example for Doctor Who of, of juxtaposing the everyday with something horrible as well. Like you say that the hands in a Tupperware jar that, you know, uh, you know, every, every kid would have seen around their own home or, you know, taking their packed lunch to school in the next day, <laughs> you know, kind of uh, cautiously, uh, you know, peeling back the lid to, <laughs> to, to get the sandwiches out and uh, thinking about the severed hand coming to life inside the Tupperware. Uh, and I suppose that, again, like Omega, you've got this uh, this idea of a banished, powerful entity that uh, that you get in, uh, in in two or three of these stories as well from uh, from the Bristol Boys. Yeah, and again, where like the, the villain has you know appeared to have won at the end, but obviously then you know appear, you know has the twist is that they won nothing uh, because that, like you said, like Jason said, they're a ruler of a dead world that the civilization has long since died out. Um, you know, so he, he's, he's come back, you know, to reap his revenge and to take control of his people. And, you know, they're, they're long gone, you know, and, uh, you get the feeling that it had this been a six parter as originally planned. Cause I think, uh, the six part was originally planned for, um, Liz Sladen's last story. Uh, and had that um, come to fruition, that perhaps like you might have then used the time travel element of like you know Eldrad forcing the Doctor to go back in time to then try and save his people and and his civilization. So, um, but yeah, this is uh, it, it's one of those um, iconic stories, I think. And the other sort of legacy from it, we mentioned Cutaway Comics earlier. I I think I'm right in saying that. Last thing that Bob Baker wrote was an Eldrad comic strip for for Cutaway Comics. I think it's I think it's called Eldrad Must Live, uh, which is uh, which is obviously available uh, now. So I'll put a link to Cutaway Comics in the show notes. Next up is the Invisible Enemy, which is uh-huh. uh, going to give. Uh, UK Jason, plenty, I'm sure, to talk about. Well, it's probably, as, as we've said a few times, you know, uh, Bob Baker and Dave Martin are never ones to not put an idea in their scripts in the hope that, you know, Doctor Who suddenly gets a multi-million pound budget. <laughs> and they've been reined in by the script editors. Obviously, Terence Dix, you know, you can see that he's reining them in with their ideas and telling them you need to go a little bit smaller. And obviously there's that with 
Robert Holmes as well. But I think once we hit the Graham Williams era, it seems if they just decide to throw in everything but the kitchen sink. And this is the key story where they literally write as if they're producing the British Star Wars, um, which, you know, um, urban myth has that this was the answer to Star Wars. But obviously, if you look at the dates that this was made, you know, um, Star Wars didn't reach the UK until December 1977. This was filmed in April 1977 and broadcast in October. So you can't say that K9 is suddenly, you know, the BBC's uh, answer to R2D2 and C3PO because it wasn't on their radar at all. They didn't know about that. So um, this is the story where obviously K9 makes his debut. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a very ambitious story. Um, you know, contact has been made, this vi- intergalactic virus. Um, you know, the they do a good job of it and they try and put what they've written on the page on the screen and bless him, Ian Schoons, you can't fault some of the modern work in this. And it's interesting, I was looking at a comparison on YouTube the other day in preparation for this, of the, the model work from the originally broadcast episodes and then the up-to-date versions that they did for the DVD and I have to say that the model work was better than the improvements that they did. Yes, all, all the laser blast and stuff were were obviously better, but when they're replacing the model work, um, they're kind of like asking doing it a bit of a disservice. So um, it is one of those um, stories that I think is a bit too overly ambitious for its own good. Um, but again, it's another rollicking adventure from them, you know, and um, it has that unique thing where halfway through we suddenly do what Doctor Who normally can do the best is that it starts um, as one adventure and then suddenly turns into another as it then becomes the homage to Fantastic Voyage as the Doctor and Leela get shrunk and like injected into uh, the Doctor's body and trying to free him of the infection of the swarm. Yeah, as you say, you can't fault the ideas, which are, which are absolutely brilliant science fiction ideas and would work in almost any other medium that you can consume Doctor Who in uh, fantastically well, um, if it's a comic strip or a, or a big finish or anything. Um, it's Yeah, they, they just generate such, such fantastic ideas all the time and... And K nine, which is uh, which is which is brilliant, and really got lucky with a with a what I think of is fantastic design as well uh, for the robot dog. It obviously went down well enough that uh, that the character stayed around and is is still with us. It is a fun story. When I was eleven years old, this was a very fun story to reenact because you have the cool spaceship effects in part one. You have the neat idea of walking through the doctor's brain, even if the white blood cells nowadays don't look as convincing as they did watching on a 13-inch television when I was 11 years old. And I love the music at the part three cliffhanger as they pull what they believe the doctor and Leela out of the uh, microscope and put them in the enlarging machine. And it turns out to be an enormous bristling shrimp, or as you would say in the UK, prawn, and you have Dudley King Simpson prawn. going nuts. Do, 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 boom, boom. Do, 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 do. 
I just walk around humming that for weeks or years afterwards. Watching it as a grown-up, it is a disaster, not because of the script, but because Graham Williams was brand new. I think this was his first story. Did not have a handle on how to produce the show or manage a star. And there's a lot of production flaws that are unforced errors. The novelization was from the era when Terrence was writing eight or nine a year, so it's barely 100 pages, and it's not as rich as his novelizations for Claws of Axos or for The Mutants. But if you ignore the design flaws and think about the fun ideas and some of the performances, you've got Michael Sheard, you've got um, Frederick Yeager, who plays uh, Professor Marius, you have John Leeson, his canine. It's poorly made, but it's well-written, and it's got a lot of fun performances to match some of the disastrous visual effects from parts two, three, and four. Plus the idea that Bob and Dave are grappling with the idea of evolution of the English language. And what is English going to be in the year 5000? <laughs> so they create their own sort of 51st century language with um, phonetic spelling that you need to take a minute to figure out what are they trying to say. Not a lot of Doctor Who stories grapple with the language like that. And the next one who will is going to be, of course, Terrence Dix in State of Decay. Maybe he got the inspiration for that from novelizing this. Who knows? <laughs> Exit, written E double G. Yeah, but you get the feeling that if that this was done, that kind of thing was done in uh, today's thing. It would be done by emojis rather than like uh, phonetics, wasn't it? <laughs> right. Mm. Like that one Peter Capaldi episode where the robots speak in emojis. Yeah. Smile, yeah. Smile. I think one thing I really like about these stories is that they start on one planet and then and then go to the the, the Bial Foundation. And it's not something that happens that much in, in, in the classic series, but it, it makes the universe feel a bit bigger and you know normally the doctor would land on one planet. It's completely unconnected to any other planet they've they've ever been to, um, and I know it's all in the same story, but it just makes the universe feel a bit more coherent and larger. The fact that oh yeah, well if we go here, then we can get a cure, and they uh, they move from one place to another. So it's I like that world building side to it as well. Yeah, it's almost like a throwback to the sixties uh, stories, isn't it? Yeah, Michael Sheard was usually playing good guys on Doctor Who, but here he starts off as a good guy in part one and then gets possessed and becomes the primary antagonist in parts two, three, and four, which is another clever twist. I think it's the only time Michael Sheard actually plays a full-on bad guy, with the possible exception of Remembrance of the Daleks years and years and years later. Yeah, but even then, I think he was like a bit... Uh, he was possessed with the chip, wasn't he? Yeah, the back right. Of the yeah. So yeah. I can really say that that Headmaster was a, a bit of a bad guy. Mr. Bronson from Grange Hill was the proper bad guy and that he's uh, <laughs> mostly famous for. Well, he played Hitler in um, Last Crusade as well, didn't he? He did, yeah. And Frederick yeah. Yeager had a cameo in The Last Crusade that was cut, although still photos are still available. He plays a drunken World War One flying ace on the Zeppelin who tries to chase after Indiana and Sean Connery and forgets to uh, unlock the uh, mechanism and plunges to his death. But Spielberg cast him and he wrote a scene and Frederick Yeager was on set and did a performance and then, of course, got cut. But that would have been two invisible enemy actors with cameos in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. 
Well, it's Michael Shedd's second appearance because he plays the U-boat captain in Raiders of the Lost Ark as well. Oh, right. Um... Yeah, except for you don't see him actually in the submarine. You just see him um, on the submarine um, turret once it's landed uh, at the island. And he's literally there in the background, in the regalia, uh, and doesn't have a word at all, but uh, he's credited as the uh, the U-boat captain. But yeah, I mean, the, the fallacy is that this was like, you know, um, you know, Doctor Who's answer to Star Wars, and I think that's been long since debunked. But it is almost as if, like you said, <laughs> Graham Williams just doesn't have a handle on how to <laughs> make the show because he's literally been taken from the the series that he devised and created, which was the um, the BBC's answer to the Sweeney uh, target, and uh, they've literally swapped them round, haven't they? But Philip Hinchcliffe suddenly was moved to target. And Graham Williams was said, right, well, you've created that series now, but you're not actually going to produce the first series, you're moving to Doctor Who. And um, it's interesting because obviously the extent of the model work and how much of the model work is done, whether or not they overspent on this and whether that just has an impact later on down the season when you get to Underworld and the evasion of time, just how threadbare with the budget those two stories are, whether it was all literally blow in, in the in the invisible enemy let's talk about underworld then underworld has one of the most intriguing part ones in doctor who because you have this alien race the minions who are able to regenerate but they're doing it wrong so they're regenerating into the same body over and over and over again for thousands of thousands of years and they have lost their will to live they have to use machines to make them happy there's Time Lord mythology, the idea of the Time Lords botching Minyas so badly being treated as gods that they have to pledge a non-interference ethos for the rest of their existence. You have the idea of you know Greek mythology, the P7E, the Persephone, being lost and buried in the underworld, or Hades. Uh, part one is fascinating. And then you get to part two, then you have the CGI caves, and you have these really limp extras running around with, you know, 1970s hairstyles in slave costumes eating rock. Uh, Underworld is almost <laughs> unwatchable in parts two and three, unfortunately, because part one is so, so good. But again, you have the quest is the quest. You've got Baker and Martin doing a really good script. But season 15, Graham Williams' rookie year, budget has run out. There was just no way to make this story. And again, the novelization is rich, and the novelization works really well. Thank you, Terrence Dix. We'll talk about it on my show in several more months. But the TV episodes just don't work, and that's a shame because it's not the writer's fault. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at it just just from a script point of view, it does some does again. Just and I keep saying this, fantastic ideas in there, uh, and and they are, I suppose, trying to do their bit as well by having the same spaceship bridge set twice. They've got the old ship and the new ship, haven't you? But yeah, and uh, had had they had the budget, I suppose, to go and film in some caves, um, you know, like Doctor Who had done before in the mutants and things. It. it would have uh, it would have been uh, probably you know quite a differently regarded story. It is strange, isn't it? How I mean, like we praise Barry Letts for his use of uh, CSO or chroma key, 
and like just how like groundbreaking that was. But then when you actually get to Underworld, where they had to, by necessity, use it because the money had virtually run out, uh, that is it's seen as a criticism. I mean, yeah, they, they do the best that they can with it. And uh, again, you know, it's... It, it's just interesting how there's that kind of like regard amongst Doctor Who fandom where like when Barry Letts uses it and it's groundbreaking, it's it's amazing and then oh you know, how how you know brilliant that he's used TSO like that and then suddenly you get to Gray and Williams and it's like, Oh my god, oh it's a pathetic, oh look how bad it looks and everything. And it's it's interesting that like that comparison that you get there. Yeah, I wonder if some of that is the element is part of how much more common CSO was by that point. You know, if uh, it was quite groundbreaking when when um, Briolette was was using it in the early seventies. By the late seventies, people are a bit more used to it and could spot it or something like that a bit more. Or it's also on the direction. Barry Letts was a competent director who did groundbreaking work in Enemy of the World. The Pertwee era had a big budget and had an in-house team of the best directors: Timothy Coombe. Michael Ferguson. When you get to Underworld, it's a brand new director who had been a production assistant a few stories earlier, Norman Stewart, who perhaps is being made director too fast. Perhaps it was the first thing he ever directed. The acting is off. The extras look terrible. You can make CSO work if the rest of the production is strong and you have good people at the helm. Underworld comes at a time when, outside of Tom Baker, nobody knew what they were doing. So it ends up being a perfect storm of every production failure under the sun. The CSO is a problem, but it's not the reason the story fails. It's everything else. So that's my half-hearted defense of CSO. But it's interesting you've got that, and this is a common thing with the Graham Williams era, is that we move away from the... the, um like the horror movie pastiche of Hinchcliffe and Holmes. And we get into this um, inspired by myths and legends uh, that Anthony Reed was uh, quite interested in. And obviously, you know, got Graham Williams backing for, and it's, you get that once Reed takes over as script editor halfway through season 15. And this is probably like one of the first to kind of like really do uh, take that direction and then that really takes off in season um, 16 doesn't it with some of the key to time stories and then and then horns of Nymon I suppose uh, after that as well you've got yeah with the Minotaur legend as well and there's only two stories in the entire classic run that mentioned my name there's horns of Nymon which has Jasonite and there's this story where the doctor calls Jackson Jason in part four that's both times on Anthony Reed, who was really into this mythology stuff. So I savor any Doctor Who story that has my name in it. So I'll give Underworld a half a point just for getting the name right. <laughs> and I'm sure UK Jason feels the same way. Oh, yeah. yeah. I have Jason and the Argonauts on Blu-ray. It was one of my favorite films as a kid. So do I. And it's got Patrick Troughton in it. <laughs> like- yeah, one of my granddads always used to say uh, whenever you, you go around right to the house, where are the Argonauts? I think the only time my name pops up in Doctor Who is when they say, uh, like, Mark III Travel Machine or the K-9 Mark II. <laughs> well, you were also one of the duped uh, spaceship travelers in, uh, the, in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Right. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
Something for you to be proud of, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> I'd forgotten about him. Yeah. So then the the last time the Bristol boys worked together on Doctor Who, and I think the penultimate time they worked together at all, before Dave Might went off to pursue his dreams of being a novelist, and and I think physically moved across the country, I think, to uh to, to achieve this. Uh so he wasn't sort of drawn into more <laughs> more TV work, although they they collaborated a little bit, uh, you know, at the time having having split very amicably. But the Armageddon factor is uh, the the end of the key to time season, uh, and probably another story where they obviously had a lot of things, uh, a bit of a, a shopping list as uh, uh, as, as these things as came to be known because they had to wrap up the uh, the entire key to time arc, find the last piece, restore the universe, defeat the Black Guardian. Uh, but they've got a, a six part story to uh, to do it in. And it touches on on some of the themes that, uh, like we said about nuclear nuclear power, this time being a nuclear war, and pretty, pretty brutal ideas in it. Although you not not you get to see a lot of it, though it's sort of fairly bloodless when you do see it. Um, I think they when they took that theme again, harking back to the autobiography, "Can I Install My Trousers?" Uh, Bob Baker says that he and Dave Martin wanted to investigate some bunkers to, uh, to 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 see what the setting would be like and, and to get a bit of the atmosphere so they uh, they went and found some some cold war bunkers that had, that had never been used um, that were near where they lived so they formed the territorial army and uh, I think I think originally they weren't really supposed to admit that they existed even though everybody knew that they did and eventually they got hold of a major who was a doctor who fan and uh, well, because they said they were working on a doctor who script uh, let them in and let them have a look round uh, to see to see what this place was like. Uh, so yeah, another another kind of nice little anecdote. And one of those one of those stories that you get about Doctor Who opening doors that even in the modern series you get about you know being able to film in the Globe Theatre and things like that. But, uh, that it reaches out like that. So yeah, it's it's not and another story that's not held in massively high regard by Doctor Who fans. By you, perhaps. I but, love it. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go to the next one, Jason. But yeah, again, full of ideas. And I think the first three episodes are, are kind of very strong. But yeah. It does suffer from six episode syndrome. Mm. You know, like you say, it starts very, very strongly, but it really does kind of like lag. And it is a bit of a shame. It's, it's, um, it's, and it's more or less consistent with its locations, isn't it, throughout the full like six episodes? And it's almost as if, you know, I'm surprised they don't do the technique that uh, Robert Holmes always did with six parters. Isn't that effectively you do a two parter and a four parter, and then you find some way to connect them? Mm-hmm. That's always, I think, the best way of, of doing like uh, the six parters in that Doctor Who like format during this classic series. He finds found the perfect way of making sure that a six-parter never lagged or never got boring or you never lost interest with it and you know and you know so um it's a bit of a shame that you know you know bob and dave don't quite like take that on board and um you know try and find something new um 
you know, for the viewer to, uh, you know, keep their interest because it, it, it does lag a bit. I can see uh, American Jason kind of like just... <laughs> Shaking my head <laughs> going, you guys, you guys, you guys. I think the idea with this one, what they call the sort of the dog leg, the sort of halfway through twist was to introduce Drax, who Baker does say in his autobiography, they envisaged as a potential recurring character a bit like a bit like the master or um i suppose a bit more like the meddling monk isn't he because he's not he's a bit more sort of uh uh kind of amoral and uh than evil but uh but but doesn't reappear i don't think unless he's in big finish or anything i don't know about but i'm not aware of any uh any subject I, don't think, no, I don't think he's ever been brought back now so uh let's let's hear jason's uh defense so <laughs> baker and martin are given a six-part nightmare brief they come up with the perfect solution. They're going to do a two, a two, and a two. Two episodes on Atrios, two episodes on Zeos, two episodes on the third planet, the Shadows planet. The Marshal dominates part one and two. John Woodnut gives a... It's John, Wood, John Woodvine, sorry. I always get those two mixed up. John Woodvine gives a terrific performance as the Marshal. He is intense... He is serious. You start off with this overacting couple in front of bad CSO, and that's a practical joke because it turns out they're performing a recruitment video, and the CSO is bad on purpose. You have the idea of fighting a war entirely on one monitor. So you can't do what Star Wars did with the 15-minute trench run on the Death Star with ship after ship and laser beam after laser beam and uh, Porkins being blown up. You just have it all done with people watching blips on a monitor screen. And it's riveting. It's tense. It's amazing. Then you go to parts three and four on Zeos. Zeos is a deserted planet. That's clever. What if we had a war and nobody was there? And you have the idea of Mentalis. And yes, maybe the stuff with K-9 chasing himself around in circles goes on a little too long. But you've got to do something to sell up the idea of an immobile computer as an implacable menace. So having that filtered through K-9 is brilliant plotting. And it's another way of disguising the budget. No money for dogfights? Have blips on a monitor screen. No money for a computer? Have canines spin around in circles in front of this inert pyramid and make him seem menacing. Part 5 and 6, you have the shadow and you also have Drax. Is Drax a good guy? Is Drax a bad guy? I don't care. Barry Jackson is awesome. And it's criminal that he didn't come back as a recurring character. He starts off, you're not quite sure if he's on the Doctor's side. He's a Time Lord. He recognizes the Doctor. And at the Part 5 cliffhanger, takes out his gun and shoots the Doctor. Oh, no. He was the bad guy all along. Maybe he's the agent of the Black Guardian. But no, he's a con man. And he's funny. And no matter what, he tries to find some angle to make things work out for himself. So he gets the idea at the end to sell the Marshal on rebuilding the planet. When did this happen? 20 minutes from now. It's another scheme of his. So he's charismatic. He's a lot of fun to watch. William Squire as the shadow is a little bit wooden, maybe. But the idea of this uh, you know, shadowy menace who can live for thousands and thousands of years and has these awesome powers, he can you know, create endless images of the Doctor or of Romana, and he has mental powers. He's a pretty interesting idea. And then, of course, the Black Guardian shows up and you have the culmination of the key to time. People don't like the story because it's a little too funny. That's on some of the acting and directing. 
the discontinuity guide, which was received wisdom for the longest time after it came out in 1995, didn't like the story. So everyone else had to dislike it because the discontinuity guide said so. I think it is a fun script. It is a clever script. And maybe the direction – there we go. There's a discontinuity guide. It's not perfect. It's not a top ten story. It doesn't work, but it's fun to watch. It's got good performances, and it makes the most of an absent budget. It is good writing, even if it's bad directing. If you say you don't like the Armageddon factor, most of Doctor Who is like that. So if you don't like the story, just don't bother with Doctor Who. Thank you for my TED Talk. This has been Manoush Zomorodi. <laughs> the TED Radio Hour. I think if you, if you look at it in, in modern eyes, it is like, obviously, because the way modern TV series are designed now, you know, you start off with a series opener, you have like a major twist, like probably halfway through you, you run of episodes, and then you build to a big finale. Uh, and I don't know whether that was the perceived like way that we watched TV back in the day. I, you know, I was only probably about, I think, when um, it went out, probably about six, six or seven uh, when season 16 went out. So, you know, I probably just like, you know, oh, is it, it's the next story. But it does, unfortunately, end on a little bit of a damp squib. You know, you have this whole quest of the key to time that obviously, you know, goes through story to story. And then you get to the final thing and you think it's going to all, you know, be a big finale and it's a bit of a damp squib at the end and you know but unfortunately that that's the card that you know um, Bob Baker and Dave Martin were dealt with and they, they do a, a good enough job uh, but obviously you know it's just not a big season finale that you would probably expect uh, you know in this day and age and they, they revisit a couple of their other ideas don't they they uh, the shrinking from the Invisible Enemy, you've got the Doctor and Drax shrunken inside K9 and, and K9 being possessed again after the Invisible Enemy. So they kind of they uh they revisit a couple of their greatest hits, I suppose. They saw how well the shrinking was achieved in uh the Invisible Enemy and thought we'll have some more of that. We can do that, <laughs> we can do that on the budget, that's funny. <laughs> but again, yeah, it's, it's such a brilliant idea of having them inside K9 and shrunk. And it's almost like a little, again, hinting at those mythologies, you know, using canine as a Trojan horse, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that Anthony Reid is so fond of. Definitely. They would then, and because they're probably the creators of canine, they always give him something quite interesting to do, you know, beyond just shooting people and that type of thing. Yeah, or just be giving, giving huge dumps of uh, exposition, you know, like some writers used to. Yeah. Which, moving on, we come to season 17. And uh, like you said uh, earlier, Bob Baker and Dave Martin split amicably uh, and decided to go their separate ways. Uh, And this is Bob Baker's uh, ninth credit with the series and his only sole credit with the series, Uh, even though apparently he reveals in the DVD commentary of this story that he did approach Russell T. Davis to write for the new series, but was turned oh. down. Um, but uh, I think that's actually a bit of a short-sighted um, uh, decision, but you can probably understand why Russell didn't want any um, old writers uh, on the show when it was coming back. 
So, yeah, we have probably Doctor Who's only kind of like dabble with uh, the dangers of drugs, uh, which coming in season 17, which is lauded for its like campness and and uh, humour uh, influenced by script editor Douglas Adams, is quite surprising. And uh, it's, it's a good tale. You know, uh, the two um, ships merging together, again, it's another high science concept that um, Bob Baker researched, um, you know, when he was uh, writing the story. And that's one thing that obviously, you know, we touched upon that they always did um, try and, like, put a high concept uh, in there. Um, Chris uh, Christopher Bidmead would have been proud with that uh, kind of research. Uh, it's noticeable, obviously, because of the mandrels, which are quite poorly um, filmed, even though I think they're a great uh, designed monster. Um, you know, as a seven-year-old watching this, uh, I absolutely loved them. I thought they were great monsters. They're a great concept. Um, it's just the problem that, um, as with quite a few Doctor Who stories, it's just... Um, overly lit and they're just not filmed in the correct way and you can see the faults of the the costumes and stuff and whether that's alan bromley's fault who was the original director of this or graham williams fault who took over the directing after alan bromley and tom bake had a huge bust up um during filming and alan bromley promptly quit even though his name is still credited as director uh, I guess we'll never know. It, that kind of thing is probably lost uh, to the annals of TV history. Yeah, like you said, I think the, the two big concepts in this for me are the, the, the ships sort of phasing together and then the, uh, the the idea that you can save parts of a planet on a crystal and project into it is, uh, yeah, is, is another absolutely corking, uh, corking idea from from Bob Baker there. Which is very similar to, uh, obviously, the miniscope um, from Carnival of Monsters. And it's interesting because um, when I was watching this, because obviously doing the season 17 uh, uh, podcast soon for the uh, Blu-ray box set, um, whether the comparison and the Doctor's attitudes to it, you've got the third Doctor who is absolutely, um, you know, thinks it's obscene that the miniscope is being used um, and, you know, said that he he helped the Time Lords get rid of them. And then you've got the fourth Doctor, who's quite complimentary of Trist and, and, and like, how he's, um, his concoction, his, his um, experiment can actually be improved upon, you know, and and is complimentary of, of, of what he's done. So it's interesting you've got the uh, two comparisons there. Yeah, I'd never thought about that before. Yeah, I was thinking of it as a thing, like to make it scary for kids. The idea that stuff can come out of your TV screen is, uh, you know, it's quite quite a good concept like that as well. Uh, yeah, because you've got that great cliffhanger, which is quite an unusual cliffhanger as well, episode two, where, you know, obviously the Doctor and Romana are being chased by, um, you know, I think that the... the the police, the galactic police have just come on board, haven't they? And it's like, well, let's jump into it. And it's like, well, we don't know what's going to happen. And it's like, well, let's find out. And they jump into uh, Eden, like through the screen. And that's a unique cliffhanger because it's not like the kind of 
usual heroes in peril cliffhanger that you used to get with Doctor Who. Absolutely. And the, and all the stuff about drugs, it almost takes it back to their early stories like Claws of Axos and the Mutants where they're really sort of trying to highlight issues and tackle things like it was, you know, sort of colonialism and, and racism stuff in the early ones that, you know, in this one, the dangers of drugs and some really sort of brutal stuff in it. I always feel really sad for the, the captain, I can't remember the captain's name, it's David Dacre. Um, captain Rick, uh, Rig. Captain Rig, who just through no fault of his own at all. Uh, he drinks spiked, doesn't he? Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a horrible fate for him. It really is. This is a beautifully written story because you don't have a lot of characters like Captain Rig, a character who is good. He's funny. He's clever. He rumbles the doctor's game minutes into part one. Galactic went out of business 20 years ago. I wonder why I never got paid. That's not good enough. That's what I said. He and Tom Baker get on like a house of fire. You can picture him as a companion almost. And then through no fault of his own, he becomes addicted to this drug and has to be killed like a rabid dog at the end of part three. It's a really well-played story arc, and you don't see it. This has just been a common theme of the last 90 minutes, right? You have these character arcs that you never see in Doctor Who, but you only see them in Bob Baker and Dave Martin stories. You have the idea of Della and Stott having this star-crossed romance and he has to play dead, and he's staring at her out from the jungle, and she can't see him. Um, that's really, really interesting. He's a survivalist, survives by himself in the jungle, avoiding the mandrels. The mandrels are the source of the drug. The reason why the two ships crash in the first place is because uh, Dimond is following closely along behind because he has to transfer the drug uh, to, to Trist. So they were in a conspiracy the whole time. The plot really resolves itself very, very beautifully. And yeah, Louis Fiander's accent was not scripted. It's not perhaps a good idea. But the idea of the amoral scientist using drugs to finance his experiment and saying, well, the victims had a choice, so you can't really blame me. It was really good writing. And again, the production lets it down. Alan Bromley was a flat director, couldn't handle Tom Baker, has to get fired You know, the last night in the studio, and Graham Williams has to finish himself. And good for Grant Williams for doing that. But the novelization works really, really well. And some of the mini cliffhangers in the novelization are so good when I read it first. Then when I went to see the TV episodes, I was disappointed because it didn't match the way Terrence Dix painted it in my head. So again, Baker is just this great wordsmith and he does good dialogue and he writes good scenes. And he always runs into this problem of directors and a low budget. So Nightmare of Eden is perhaps not fondly remembered. I am looking forward to the season 17 podcast episode of Trap One. But I think Nightmare is underrated and is worthy of a lot of praise and gets criticized for all the wrong reasons. And as we were saying, it's like the, uh, the whole thing of like characters having a life outside of the actual story. And you do get uh, another recurrence of that, like like we saw in The Hand of Fear, you know, with Della, you know, actually in a relationship and mourning the loss of, uh, you know, her, her lover, who she thinks is dead, but he's actually hiding away in the in the Eden, uh, like, section uh, because, you know, he's, he's trying to um, uh, find out, about, you know, what's happened and everything, and he's trying to, like, you know, prevent it all. But, yeah, it, it's a really topical... Um, you know, even for its day and even still to this day, you know, t- to use the drugs. And I don't, I don't think even the new series has, 
has tackled, uh, you know, drugs uh, in a, any kind of like allegory way. You know, I know Russell T Davies did it for, you know, one of his uh, his new adventure, right. Damaged Goods. Mm. That's probably that's the only instance I can actually like think. I can't even think of it being done in uh, any big finish as well. So yeah. such a, a big, um, you know, important concept that you probably like usually like say for a soap opera or a drama or you know a a crime show you know it's interesting to and nice to see doctor who actually tackle that and you know yeah there are scenes where it's all being sent up and tom's like you know in a bit of he's he's not as bad here as what he is in the horns of naimon um, but um, you know, my arms, my legs, my everything scene is obviously <laughs> the one that everybody like you know kind of like quotes. But in the scenes where they're actually talking about the consequence of Veroxin, you know, he he's dead on serious. You know, he's back to like you know, I've seen planets absolutely wiped out by this. You know, they, we've got to stop this now. You know, and, and it's a it's nice contrast to the you know, kind of like the campy performance that you sometimes get out of him in this season and i think it purely probably because he saw the subject matter on the page and decided well i can't really send that up i need to like you know play these scenes as straight as possible. the way that he dismisses trist at the very end when trist tries to justify yeah. himself as he's being led away yeah doctor tell them you know tell them and the doctors go away and he's harsh and that's yeah. almost hearkening back to the darker philip hinchcliffe incarnation of the, of the Tom Baker doctor. Yeah, and excellently played. And I also love his line mm-hmm. at the beginning. Romana goes, should we really interfere? And he goes, interfere? Always do what you're best at. That's what I say. I love that line. <laughs> I use that a lot in my daily life. <laughs> and that's another Bob Bakerism. Yeah, and it, it highlights how unusual it is to have the relationship um, uh, as Della has because I think when she says to the doctor, oh, we were more than just colleagues or something like that. And uh, he goes, Oh, like, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, it kind of hangs a lantern on how unusual it is for him to meet somebody who is, uh, you know, kind of, uh, in a relationship like that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really more adult sophisticated writing than, than you get in a lot of the era, isn't it? So that was the last of the Bob Baker stories. And you have to say he goes out on a high note, um, not counting Alan Bromley, but Bob Baker comes back to the Doctor Who universe because you have this great idea in K-9, the robot dog who takes off. And Bob Baker spends years when he's not writing for Wallace and Gromit. He's got his other famous uh, fictional dog. And he really wants to get this K-9 series off the ground. Finally, when Doctor Who hits it big in 2005... He is able to get the money for a co-production deal because he can't finance the thing himself. And he gets an Australian company to put together K-9 the series. They go to Russell T. Davies, who's already busy with two other spinoffs. And I say, sorry, this is one brand extension too far. We don't have the bandwidth. But Bob Baker has the rights to K-9, so he's able to use K-9 and nothing else from the Doctor Who universe. So he, with the help of some other younger producers, puts together K-9 the series. It gets a 26-episode order, and it's shot in Sydney in 2009. And it airs internationally. They aired the first episode, I think, on the BBC right around the time that K-9 returned to the Sarah Jane Adventures in Season 3, late 2009. But the bulk of the series airs in 2010. Uh, 
there were a lot of behind-the-scenes production problems. There was production turnover. There was a little bit of cast turnover. It was not a very well-made series, and Bob Baker was not directly involved in the day-to-day. But after the production turmoil, they brought him in in the second half of the season to write two episodes for the series that he had pitched and created and gets associate producer credit on. So K-9 the series is a bit of a dog's breakfast. It takes place in a dystopian London in the year 2050. And the bad guys are called the Department, which is kind of like the Torchwood of this universe. They're sort of an arm of the government that specializes in harvesting alien tech. The main character is kind of like Giles from the Buffy universe. He's this rumpled, shy professor who lives in an abandoned police station, and he has agoraphobia. And he's, had, he's lost his family and is trying to get them back through this time portal. And he's surrounded by three plucky kids. There's the artful Dodger, who's a thief, who's his fixer, Darius. There's this young, sort of uh, Julian Assange-esque rebel who's 14 years old and is a computer wizard is trying to bring down the dystopian government. That's Starkey, who has kind of like the Tom Baker hair going on. And then you have Georgie, who's the cute little 14-year-old girl, whose mother works for the department and is evil, but she's good, and she's trying to help out the professor. And the mother comes around over the course of the series. Into the mix, you have the original K-9 Mark I, who lands through this time rift and sacrifices himself in the very first scene to save the heroes, and then regenerates and becomes a flying dog with floppy ears, voiced by Bob voiced by John Leeson through a voice modulator. Now, in 1978, Superman the movie is made, and it was the first realistic superhero comic books movie. And the tagline in 1978 was, you'll believe a man can fly. And I see Jason is mouthing along with me. For the canine <laughs> series, the tagline must have been, you'll believe a dog can fly. Now, there are very good production <laughs> reasons for having a flying dog, all right? You have very tall actors in Tom Baker and Mary Tam. And because of the canine prop being immobile, they have to kneel down on the floor to get canine to the shot. But because they're so tall, they have to kneel down and hunch over. So whenever Mary Tam and Tom Baker are talking to canine, they're almost folding themselves into clamshells just to get on the same eye level as, as the canine prop. That's why you need a flying dog. But of course, dogs don't fly. Why couldn't canine have regenerated into a parrot? And there is uh, Mark holding a flying canine across the screen. (laughs) The other problem is that they didn't get Ian Levine back to do the theme song. So the canine, the series theme song is catchy, but it's not as catchy as... Now, you can watch the entire canine series on YouTube. It's up there. It's probably not supposed to be because they've disguised it, but it's all there, all 26 episodes. The two of them are written by Bob Baker. The first one is called Memory Trap, and all it is is a clip show. And he has co-writing credit with his co-producer. I don't know who wrote the flashbacks and who wrote the connecting tissue, but it's ridiculous. It's terrible. Don't bother with it. The one that he wrote that's all his own is called Angel of the North. And again, 40 years after the Clause of Access, Bob Baker has still not figured out how to write for a no-budget series being made in Australia with a cast of five. He basically turns it into the 1982 version of The Thing. You have a wrecked spaceship in the Arctic Circle, and you have an alien menace stalking the people who are on the spaceship trying to harvest alien tech. 
and the main character, Professor Griffin, who is an agoraphobe and cannot leave the police station, leaves the police station to travel to the spaceship to harvest this alien tech. And there's a whole bunch of scenes that are supposed to be done outside in the blizzard, but they didn't have the technology, so they're standing in front of a white screen with CGI smoke being blown at them. And it ties into the series mythology because there's two main alien menaces throughout the series, the Jixon and the Corvin. And one of them is good, but seems bad, and the other is just flat-out bad. And this episode ties into the three-part series finale. It's episode 23, and the three-part series finale is next. And we figure out which alien race is good for mankind, which is not, and why is K-9 here in the first place, and what is the point of K-9, and why has he lost his memory? Most of that gets answered. So it's a very important episode. And again, it's not a great series. It is not nearly as good as the Sarah Jane Adventures. I watched six episodes from the Canine series for my pilgrimage. So if you go to my hashtag, Doctor Who Pilgrimage, DR Who Pilgrimage, you can see my review of these six Canine episodes. I then watched Sarah Jane season three right after that because they aired at about the same time. And season three of Canine, sorry, season three of Sarah Jane is much better because you have uh, you have emotional beats, you have a better cast, you have better production values. But the Canine series. But the canine series is an interesting experiment. It's Bob Baker finally getting what he wants. He's getting his canine series. John Leeson does the voice of canine in all 26 episodes. Yes, Mark, you get the flying doggy. So if you're sitting in your house flying canine around, you can pretend that you're canine in the series. It's free to watch as long as it's on YouTube. Give it a try. Watch a couple of episodes. It's not great. You can see why Russell T. Davies wouldn't pay for it. But it's Bob Baker's last Doctor Who in-universe televised script, so we'll always have that. It's interesting. I hadn't heard the story um, that you were saying before, Jason, about that he'd approached Russell T. Davis to write for write for the new series. And I just looked up there because I wasn't sure when Curse of the Were-Rabbit came out, but that was also 2005. So I think he would be kind of pretty hot property at that time, uh, coming yeah. off an Oscar-winning movie. It's... Uh, and the publicity from that as well, not only like the the Wallace and Gromit link, but, you know, K-9 was still kind of a household name, all the rest of it. Yeah, and obviously I was thinking of this when I was like, um, you know, looking at Nightmare of Eden. And uh, I think it, it's... I, I don't criticise Russell T. Davis for a lot of stuff because, you know, he, he, he's a brilliant writer, but I think he was a bit short-sighted just to bat him away straight away. And like because oh his old series I'm I'm not interested kind of like you know you know I'm sure he was nice about it, but you have a writer who has got a long and successful career in television, who then moves into the domain of um, short films and then obviously um, feature films and has won what uh, one two three four was it four Oscars he won. Uh, for three of the Wallace and Gromit shorts and then the Wallace and Gromit film and he's proven at coming up with uh, cracking ideas cracking ideas uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and condensing them and, and able to tell so certainly with the Wallace and Gromit shorts I mean they are literally like 25 to 30 minutes long and I think it, I think Bob Baker would have been a shoo-in and an easy fit for Doctor Who's new 45-minute format. I think he would have really, really 
done a good job. You, you, uh, you know, and I know Russell T. Davis has said a lot about how much he had to rewrite scripts and he virtually rewrote every single script that came across his desk during season uh, series one to four, except for Stephen Moffat's because he didn't touch those. You know, and he's like, you should really, you know, take advantage of, of somebody who's, you know, got experience. And I think it, it is a shame that Bob Baker didn't return to the show in that I one. was going to say, you give him the school reunion slot early in season two. He's written for Sarah Jane yeah. before. The episode reintroduces K-9. It gives us the sacrifice and the reincarnation of K-9 Mark IV, which is similar to how the K-9 series is going to open in Australia in a few years' time. Bob Baker would have been a natural to write School Reunion, and I can see why Russell wanted to write it himself because of the love affair between the Doctor and Sarah going bad, and here they're having to reconcile all these years later. But you could have given Bob Baker one of these classic series revival scripts for the new series, and like you say, he would have knocked it out of the park. Finally, too, the budget was there. You finally have the CGI effects to do what he wanted to do. That's Yeah, it's a shame. I didn't know about this before today, but it's a shame that we never got it, and it's too late now. Yeah, you know, and obviously, you know, you know, looking at Bob Baker's writing history, you know, he created two successful children's uh, series for ITV, Sky with uh, Dave Martin in the 1970s, which ran for a couple of series. And then obviously, straight after Nightmare of Eden, he um, created a show, co-created a show called uh, Into the Labyrinth, which uh, ran for three successful seasons on uh, ITV. Uh, which was about two feuding uh, um, immortal magicians. And obviously one of them had the help of three children. And uh, the hero magician was played by Ron Moody, who I remember at the time did a very doctorly kind of performance. And we all know that Ron Moody was offered the third doctor and turned it down and said in numerous interviews afterwards that it was one of the biggest regrets of his career that he'd uh, turned down the role. So, you know, he, he did get the chance to do a kind of Doctor performance at the end, you know, written by a Doctor Who writer. But, yeah, I, I watched those two K-9, the series episodes as well, Jason, because those are the ones that you pointed us to uh, in terms of um, the ones that Bob Baker had written. You said the first one, yeah, it's, it's a clip show, isn't it? It's like, it's like when the Simpsons uh, do one of those... Uh, flashback heavy episodes yeah. um yeah the other one i was quite intrigued because i'd never I'd, i think i'd only watched the first episode of K9 the series when it was broadcast on disney xd in this country right, yeah. yeah that's the only uh, one i saw yeah yeah i didn't i didn't really get away with it the thing that weirdly the thing that really put me off was uh, K9 laughing just thought that really uh Really feels weird. Um, not sure. <laughs> not sure about that. I think that. it was also shown on Channel Five uh, in during the summer holidays one one time. Like it was stripped across the mornings, uh, like Monday to Friday, I think as well. I'll also give a shout out. Bob Baker didn't write it, but one of the episodes towards the end of the Canine series is called "The Lost Library of Ucko." Bears very strong, very strong similarities to Nightmare of Eden. I'm sure that was done on purpose. Right. So it, is the series wrapped up or, or were they expecting a second season? It wrapped up. Season one has a conclusion. Um, they never got a second series off the ground. And obviously you couldn't do it now because the guy who played Darius, um, Daniel Weber, has moved on to a very big career. 
all the other actors in it are still performing, you know, very big names, I guess, in Australia. They have long, long credits on the IMDb and on Wikipedia. But if you were to revive the series, you would have to use a different cast and probably a different premise. And I know Bob Baker was trying to do a canine movie at the end, I think called Timequake. But yeah, it's, it's a one-off series, 26 episodes. It's not going to be picked up or revived. There's not going to be a big nostalgia wave for it. It kind of came and went, and it's a curiosity. But it's worth taking a glimpse at because it's got Bob Baker and because it's got, you know, K-9, my favorite Doctor Who companion of all time. <laughs> and, and do we get to learn which K-9 it is? It's is the it? original, K-9 it- Mark One, the one that Bob Baker created. So the one that was left with Leela on Gallifrey at the end of the Imagine Correct. Time. And there's an interesting scene in the first episode, which is also on YouTube, uh, properly labeled, uh, where the professor is tinkering around with K-9's positronic brain and plays a snippet of the Doctor Who theme song. That was all they could afford, I guess. So those three notes, those three familiar notes. Yeah. That was literally as much as they could acknowledge Doctor Who. Well, that and Starkey having Tom Baker here, but uh, other than that. <laughs> right. So I think that's, I think that, I think there's nobody left from the 1960s or 1970s with the passing of Mervyn Hazeman around the same time as Bob Baker. I think the earliest surviving writers are from season 18, which is 1980. Yeah, I did read, obviously, when he passed away, Bob Baker, that he was the last of the 1970s. Uh, writers who was uh, still with us so it is like you know an end of an era really uh, but you know he 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 left behind a brilliant you know, uh, career not only in Doctor Who but the stuff that he did with Nick Park with Wallace and Gromit you know and obviously he got a cameo in one of the uh, episodes as well that you know Baker Bob was uh, his yeah. after him a matter of love and death, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did look up because obviously the uh, a second Wallace and Gromit film is currently in production uh, and is due to debut in 2024 on the BBC uh, and then internationally on Netflix. So it's going straight to TV, but it will be a feature-length uh, Wallace and Gromit film. And I did just uh, look it up just to see if Bob Baker did have any credit on it, but uh, it looks like... Uh, uh, he may have been, I don't know whether he or not he was too ill or not, or to uh, contribute to this one, but it's only credited to uh, Nick Park and uh, Mark Benton, I think, uh, is the other writer who's uh, credited. Yeah, he did not. But it'd be write... interesting to see if he gets a story by credit when it comes out. He mm. did not write Nick Park's last movie, Early Man, which I watched the whole thing just to get to the credits to see if Bob Baker was involved, but he, he didn't write that. He must have been, you know, retired at that point. And I guess they would yeah. have to replace Peter Salas as well. Yeah, he's already been re- well replaced by the the guy they used to get to do all like the computer games and the 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 little shorts that used to turn up on like BBC One and stuff. He's he's inherited the uh, the the voice now, so he'll be. I think Ben Whitehead. I think he's the backup called. Wallace. Uh, so he. <laughs> So I think he's uh, he's now the official voice of uh, Wallace. But as I say, uh, amazing legacy. The, those Wallace and Gromit films are still shown very regularly on on BBC One over here. You know, new generations of kids are gonna are gonna find those, um, and they're, they're so timeless. 
that the, you know they're they're like the sort of classic Disney movies. They're not really going to age, are they? You're not going to be uh, going to be aware of uh, of how old they are. And then K9 and Omega and and all the stuff that uh, that they brought into Doctor Who, the uh, the format of the multi Doctor story. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's all going to be there. He leaves a great legacy behind. Yes, absolutely. Um, as I say, although none of us have read it, there is uh, his last piece of Doctor Who writing is the cutaway comic that I think is fairly recent, um, which is the, is the one about Eldrad. So uh, well worth checking that one out, I think. Likewise, his autobiography, which um, I, th- I think maybe was is back in print um, since since his death. Yeah, which you can order from Phantom uh, from, from their website. I will put in. I have a lot of Phantom books on my shelf already. I will make that another one. Yeah, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to that one. Uh, yeah, really, really interesting read. Uh, obviously, plenty of Doctor Who content in there, and uh, and a lot of other stuff as well. Well, thank you very much, Sheltman. Join uh, UK Jason next week uh, with a panel who will be looking at the season seventeen Blu-ray box set. Looking forward to that one. Oh yeah, definitely. I might repeat some of the stuff I said about Nightmare and Eden, but obviously I've got lots to say about the other stories as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Have a great night. Bye now. Bye. Bye.